Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. You know, it's it's hard to think of spring when we're still only in February in, in the UK, but I, I it is there. It will come round. Light will return and warmth. And when it does... Are you sure? Yeah, it will. Do, yeah, honestly, it will occur. You'll be on the third year of your Ilkley Live, which was a bit of a germination of a great idea about how you could bring music into people's gardens during the during the pandemic. Yes, it, I can't believe it's the third year, but yes, I think we may have talked about it on the show before. But yeah, because I, um, my friend Greg and I had to practice six feet apart in our garden a couple of times, and people sort of came past and stood around the gate and watched. It sort of germinated this, yeah, this idea, this sort of planted this this seed if you like that we could do a little garden music festival so we started doing that two years ago and it just it was fantastic it was just it was incredibly moving actually because of course after covid we were all longing for human contact live music and we had all of that and, and um, the weather behaved itself so yeah it was glorious has it grown like, what's your relationship to it? Well, you know, my physics teacher at school said to me, a good physicist is a lazy man. And I, I guess if now it would be a lazy woman as well. Um, but <laughs> I really set out on this thing to be as light as possible. I wanted it to be by the community for the community. So I've set up these systems and things with the help of Ian, actually, who was a guest on the show, so that we I don't have to do too much. But I've realized that last the musicians are amazing and they are they come along and they play but we need a bigger audience so what i've realized this year is i need to rope in a few more but we need to do more to drum up an audience for for all those players so um it means i'm going to have to grab a few people together put get a few people together and volunteer and do some and volunteer work they have the lovely thing is actually volunteerism sort of pops up all over the place you have i've got a, someone arranged sort of so said i'll grab, grab this pub and we'll sort out some acts here someone else said i've got this bar and i'm going to sort out so volunteering sort of comes out of nowhere but i need to get a little bit more organized about it so i'm very interested to hear jim goddard today talking about leading volunteers because um it's a it's an interesting topic i'm hoping it'll be a reasonably informal thing that i'm doing but i know he has spent a couple of decades now making having an impact on the planet through people who aren't paid um and so it'll be really interesting to see how he's done that another great example of how humans connect to get really great things done so let's pop let's over and hear from him and yeah let's hear from jim now Jim, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. Excellent. We're really looking forward to our conversation today. It's a really um, fascinating topic. So, um, but before we get into that, let's um, let's get to know you a little bit better with the famous conversation starter cards. So I'll pick one at random. See what uh, Mr. Goddard. Oh, you get a red card, Mr. Goddard. Ooh, tricky um, one, is it? They are tricky ones. My biggest di- disappointment about myself is. Oh, get Ooh, straight gosh. in there. Yes. Wow, now get to know me quickly. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> I think an answer to that for me would be that sometimes I tend to undermine myself. So there are moments when, like, like all of us, I feel great about myself, and there are other moments where I undermine myself and I start to think negative thoughts about myself. And so that's, that's been a repeating pattern for years for me. 
And so having to overcome that is something I find quite challenging sometimes. I guess you have high highs and, and low lows. And so and then there are times when you, you stop believing in yourself as much as maybe others do or as much as you do when things are going well. Well, I imagine that there are a few of our listeners who have the same thing going on in their heads. So, um, <laughs> so oh, just a so few. They, they wanted to. In fact, so I'm very, very pleased to that you that you are so uh, so so transparent with us. Thank you, Jim. Great start. Um, so let's just segue a little bit and um, hear a bit about a bit more about you, Jim. Where, where you where you've come from, how you got to this place. Um, carrying this burden with you all the while. But tell us a bit about Jim Goddard. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I, was, I mean, I started off life as a, an engineer from university. Um, so don't hold that against me. But um, I spent 10 years in the, I guess, in the for profit world um, and uh, focusing on um, leading engineering companies and, and, and engineer enterprise tech. Um, but I had this kind of life transformation in my late 30s, um, which was I really had this sense that there must be more to life than what I was doing. And, and what I mean by that really was not that for-profit was wrong. It's just that I felt like I needed to invest my energies in something that really suited me better. And so I started living what I call purposely, um, and it was ultimately towards having this sense of impact for good on the world. I couldn't have summarized that at the time, but that's how it feels now. <laughs> And um, I guess for the last 20 years, um, I've just followed this, my heart and sense of calling. I haven't followed what anyone else or what society has expected of me. I just followed my own sense of calling. Um, and I've invested energies into things that are basically for the greater good. So an example of that would be most of that time has really been focused on alleviating poverty around the world. So infusing and inspiring people to, to care, to contribute you know, their time, treasure and talent. I've also led organizational transformation of large nonprofits to turn around their fundraising or improve their fundraising. And I founded a couple of community movements over that time, which you know, have meant leading a lot of volunteers. And that, that's really about getting people to stand up and do their bit, whether that's to end extreme poverty, reduce carbon emissions, end global warming, et cetera. And then most recently, which you know, may be interesting, I've just uh, started an executive advisory that helps leaders and organizations to become more purposeful and become more sustainable, you know, triple bottom line profit, et cetera. So I've changed substantially over that time and um, I've just really followed a sense of passion and calling and interest really. And so that's had some really exciting moments and some, some challenging moments. <laughs> that's a big life change. Many of us, we sort of sleepwalk into our career sometimes, you know, it's just sort of the thing that you do. So what, what was defining for you? What, creative for you to suddenly think gosh this may not be the right path and 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 to start going down a more purpose-led path because that's a less trodden one yeah great question there was really the, the first sort of ongoing sense was that I didn't really feel like I was enjoying my life in my 20s so when I first when I graduated university traveled the world spent a couple of years I really had a fantastic time traveling around the world and especially in Australia, which is why I ended up coming back here. And, um, and then as I started getting into corporate life, I just thought this, there's got to be more for me than this. Not saying that it isn't enough for others, but I just really felt like it wasn't um, meeting who I was. I wanted to live more passionately, I guess. And, um, and so there was this period, maybe of five, six years, where I, just, I was just searching and, and researching and reading as much as I possibly could to try to understand myself as we all do in our, in our twenties and where I was going to go. And, um, 
And there were a couple of, you know, some books that were really incredible in making that and helping me through that time. Uh, one of them was called Halftime, which was written for people in their, le- in their early 50s who succeeded in the first part of their life. And they take this halftime moment to think about what they're going to do in the second part of their life and how they're going to give back. And uh, I unfortunately read it when I was 29. <laughs> so, so I felt like I was exercising um, what that book was written about in my early 30s. <laughs> I got an early start. Retitle it a quarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> but there were, there were other things, like my brother was, was really struggling mentally and ended up taking his own life, and that happened in my late 20s, and other things happened in my family. So that, you know, they all concluded together to just go, okay, I need to step out of life for a moment and rethink. I mean, that's amazing. And I think, you know, I think those late 20s are quite um, wake-up years, you know, when you start to think, gosh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm becoming a grown-up now. Is this, is this the path that I want to choose? How, how did you start to make changes? What did you practically do? Because you, you know, you're, you're working in the sort of majority setting in the corporate world. How, how do you take that, those steps to start fulfilling your own purpose? Yeah, that's another good question because I can remember it very specifically. Um, so I've, I've always been a passionate sailor, mountaineer, kind of adventurer. And um, when I was working as a sales director for um, Lucent Technologies at the time, um, there was an opportunity to do this exciting, adventurous race called the Three Peaks Yacht Race, which is quite famous in England. And, um, and so I decided to lead that. I just took a, a challenge and a dare to go and do that. And uh, that meant getting a few people together. It meant getting a bit of fundraising together. And I just enjoyed it so much. I remember thinking, I need to do that again. So then we did something the following year and then something the following year. And uh, over a period of two or three years of, of running these kinds, kinds of adventure challenges and finding that that was far more exciting than my work, <laughs> I decided that that's the kind of thing that I needed to do full time. So I ended up cycling through South America for a year just to kind of get my head straight and, and, and think what I should do next. And, um, and then came a long, lonely two or three years of trying to determine what that looked like next. And, but ultimately, that led to leading my first volunteer community movement, um, which I know we'd like to talk about later. But there's an important thing to mention in there, which is part of the challenge of this lifestyle, which is that people might say, well, how did you afford it? Well, at the time, I guess I was fortunate that I, I didn't have any responsibilities. And so that meant that it was easy for me to step out and to rethink. I, I totally get that's different if you're in a different position. But what I've always made sure, and even now with a married family, you know, I've always made sure that I don't over, I always make sure the financial decisions that I make are such that I've always got one or two years space so that I can have some freedom there to, to make sure I can make a purposeful choice rather than feeling like I'm running month to month and I just have to abide by what the world says. It's really interesting. I think in, this, in these times, I think a lot of people are starting to not not just question whether their happiness, but actually do something about it and start thinking this is not for me and start to leave. Particularly those people who've reached half time, actually, and also that that strategy you had in your life of that two year cushion, you know, that thing about your possessions start to own you, and so you can get yourself trapped quite easily, can't you? So it's a you've played a smart game, I think, Jim. Um, let's just zoom a little bit in on this volunteer work and and start to look at that. Tell us. Tell us about the sorts of things you've you set up, you've achieved, but also if you can just dive a little bit into the how humans in that world connect. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've led two fairly large community movements. One's running now, 
Um, the first one was back in 2005. It was a community partnership movement. It was on the back of the Make Poverty History movement. If you remember that in 2005, it was big in the UK, especially in Europe and Australia. And um, what I wanted to do was think global, act local, which is obviously what a lot of community movements are about. And it was about making sure that I, or, or encouraging that I, a community in Australia at the time, Sydney, can partner with a community in Indonesia. And we could actually make a tangible difference to the lives of thousands of children and families living on rubbish tips and, and fishing slums. Um, and I actively led that for five years as a volunteer. We had 20,000 people involved over that time. We had hundreds and hundreds of community events, raised millions of dollars. But it actually wasn't really about the dollars. I mean, it's partly about it, but um, it was more about changing hearts and minds. And that's, that's the thing about community movements. You can go and raise huge amounts of money from business or corporate. But if you want personal transformation, which to me is what community movements are all about, then it's about the individuals. It's not necessarily about the amount of money. Money is a method to helping people make a choice and contribute. Time, talent, treasure is a way that people can contribute. But it's in the contribution that is the is where the transformation comes. So we lived that for five years. We can talk more about that in a second if you wish. But then the second one I've just started about a year and a half ago, and uh, I'm still leading now, is a community decarbonization and renewable energy movement, which is basically taking a, a local government area or a council area. In our case, it's about 200,000 people and businesses, and it's aiming to reduce carbon emissions by 70% by 2030 um, as part of the net zero strategy. Um, and basically, again, it's doing our bit. It's saying as a community, the world needs to change. No, we're needing to end extreme poverty or we're needing to reduce carbon emissions. And so let's step up, let's lead as a, as a community and do our bit and show the world that we as a developed nation, wealthy developed nation can make this happen. It's it's great to hear, and Pierre and I, we, we've talked a lot on the show and elsewhere about, you know, in our circle of concern, we have lots of things to worry about, and we go on about them a little bit. But actually, what can you do? And it sounds like you, is the question, it sounds like you've really taken that seriously through the last couple of decades and really done something about it. So take us into the volunteer world, Jim. What sort of roles do the volunteers do? How do you engage them, first of all? How does it, how does it go well? It's interesting because when you use the term volunteers, I never think about that. I never even think about that word. So that is interesting in itself. I don't think of myself as a volunteer. I don't think of the people I'm talking to as volunteers. Um, I tend to think of them as people who are passionate about getting stuff done or getting, making change happen. And it's just that they don't get paid for it. They're people that want to be part of a transition. They want to bring change in the world. Change makers might be a better word. And the fact that they don't get paid is irrelevant. Um, but we tend to make a big deal out of the fact that people don't get paid, um, which is probably the least important part, to be honest. Yeah, there's lots to say about it. I guess, you know, the, the first is that leading volunteers can be incredibly rewarding because it's kind of like a, I call it almost like a pure type of leadership, whereas in, um, people don't need to follow you. If you're setting something up as a, as a, as a volunteer yourself or as a community passionate or whatever you want to call yourself, a change maker, People don't have to follow you. You can, you can go and stand on the corner and start talking or go to a town hall meeting and people just walk out the door. I mean, it's happened to me hundreds of times. Um, so it, it can be really rewarding, but it can also be incredibly humbling. It can be rewarding because you can engage hearts and minds and, and, and inspire people and they say, I want to be part of that. Yes. 
And then suddenly you find that you've gone from zero to 30 people who want to be part of this little new thing. And then that builds to a hundred and then a thousand. And, and that's an incredibly rewarding thing because you're not throwing money at the problem. You're just using inspiration and vision and, and all the, the traits of leadership that we know. But it also can be incredibly frustrating because people don't have to work for you. I mean, I keep saying again, they don't have to do what you say. They don't have to follow your vision. They don't, they don't have to work for you. you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and they don't turn up and they don't, they don't do what they say they're going to do all the time. And they overcommit because they're over, they get excited. And so you, the reason I find it so engaging as a leader is because it constantly reminds you to lead authentically. You have to kind of peel yourself back, take your ego away. Any moment that you get any sense of ego, you are not completely stuffed. You know, and <laughs> running a community movement or running volunteers, it, it basically unwinds, peels back the onion to the core. And that core has to be deeply authentic. Otherwise, people won't follow it and because they can smell it a mile away if it's not. I mean, that's really interesting because leading with our ego and not getting a payback for your ego as a human, is a difficult thing to do because we're in a society where we're often being framed or we're seeing around us that that's, that's, we, we get those payoffs and that's what, that's what sometimes sort of increases our own ambitions and makes us want to do more. So to actually stand there and peel everything away and just be left with the purpose of why you're there, that must be very hard. Can you remember the first time you almost did that, not in that corporate, but just like walking in, got an idea, I want to share it. It's interesting. It's happened a couple of times because, um, you know, I, two years ago, I came out of 12 years working for World Vision International, which ended up, you know, and it's a huge corporate, it's, it's 37,000 employees, and I was a senior director there. And so I got, although it was a passionate cause, and we were doing incredible and purposeful work and full of people who are equally committed, I got paid. And so there was this sense of you know, architecture around you and, and a sense of not necessarily ego, but position and, and all those things that we know. And so setting up the second community movement, I had to peel the onion back again. It was almost like a kind of, okay, you've done your 10 years. You think you're amazing. It's time to wind it all back to you and uh, be, be authentic again or be more authentic again. And so I remember it a lot in this last year and a half. Because I came in with all my, well, I'm this, I'm that, you know, I've got all this experience and I'm really amazing at this and, you know, you can trust me for this. And um, I remember a number of times in, in, in meetings and or afterwards where people would call me out and, in effect, they would either call me out subtly or directly and effectively say, you're making it all about you, it's not about you. And, uh, yeah, there were, <laughs> there were difficult moments, but they were equally incredibly incredibly heartfelt moments when people have the courage to do that and, and ultimately it makes you a better leader. I agree with that 100%. And you, you've got to have a lot of courage to stand in that spot. Not many people unpeel and, and do that and then face that type of, that type of feedback. In, in, I guess in the lifelong pursuit of their own purpose. That's, um, I find that quite humbling about you because it's an, and an incredibly strong characteristic because it's almost like you, you can't allow yourself to rest for too long. <laughs> You've got to re, reincarnate into, you know, into, into a different person. It's, yeah, it, that, that, that's, that's, not, that's not always an easy path. Well, it's, not, it's definitely not easy, but it's not something that I can, 
I mean, I've been questioning myself in the last couple of years because of because of the peeling back and, and I feel like almost starting again. And it's not easy, but at the same time, I don't really have a choice because it's it's what I feel led and called to do and it's what my heart is telling me to do. And as I said at the start, that's kind of what I've committed myself to do, to live authentically and purposely. And ultimately, I believe it leads, it leads to greater happiness and greater well-being, greater authenticity to do all those things. So if you don't follow your heart, you're effectively ignoring, ignoring what your life is telling you to do or ignoring how you, you believe that that comes to you. But um, I, I guess when, I, you know, when, you, when you sit back and you're 70 or 80 or 90 or wherever, however, however long we get to, I guess it's, you know, I've always wanted, I just want to look back and go, I lived, I lived passionately, I lived purposely, I, I did what I wanted to do, not necessarily what I felt I ought to do. The reason, one of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you about working with people, unpaid people, change makers, whatever they're called, was that exact point that you, you've made, which is you, they don't have to work for you. Because I'm working with a charity in the UK, working with some people who were man- managers of a charity in the UK, said that they've had people say, you can't tell me what to do because I'm a volunteer. And they would sort of cherry pick the tasks. So the volunteers would say, well, I'm happy to do that, but don't make me do that. And the, and the managers ended up doing all <laughs> worse tasks, I think, just covering up. Have you, have you seen that? And unfair leadership question, but how have you overcome that? I, I have seen it. But to me, the minute that you start to get into that challenge, you need to rewind a bit and to and get closer to your to your people to the change makers so the reason that happens is in my view is because the people that you have volunteering are volunteering against their own expectations of what that means rather than an agreed and aligned expectation of what it means so one one of the things that um, it's absolutely critical is to assure that you have alignment of the why what how and who and in this last agreement that I built, we spent three months going around in circles on the why, what, how, and who, much to the frustration of lots of people who left. But I, I knew and I know from experience that unless, unless you get absolute clarity about why we're here, you know, what's the vision that we're trying to aim for, how are we going, about, going to go about doing this, what are our objectives, and who are we, what are our values that we're going to behold, you will get the wrong people on the bus. And so it's critical to do that and to extend that to get the right people on the bus. That's the first thing. Now, so that's building from nothing, from scratch. Now, if you are a charity and you're trying to bring volunteers on board, then a lot of that's already solved, and that's kind of a, an induction process that you take you know, when you bring volunteers on board. But you could be easily stuck in a place where you're telling the volunteer, this is who you're signing up with. But that doesn't involve their intrinsic motivation, doesn't involve their vision, doesn't involve you haven't tapped into anything. But all you're doing is effectively saying, come and help us. So the second thing, then, therefore, is that it, you have to spend a lot of time getting to the bottom of who they are and what they want and alignment of their vision with, with your vision. Why are you here? What's, what are you passionate about? Why are you, help, why are you even thinking about helping this chat? You know, what, what is it that's triggered that? What do you want to get out of it? What, um, what would success look like for you in two years' time? What would success look like for us in two years' time? And you need, to get, you need to stay there for as long as possible until you find that you've got the right people who are really passionate about your cause. And if they are, they'll do anything for you, anything. So I, I never have the problem 
with people not wanting to do the difficult stuff. And we'll talk, we'll talk more about my concept of leaving purposeful gaps in a minute. But if you, as long as you've built vision in people and you've got alignment of vision in people, then you're okay. This, the third point quickly to make is that, and it's the same with all leadership, isn't it? Is that you don't expect anybody to do anything that you're not willing to do yourself. And so I've done everything myself, right? Whether it's cleaning up our strategy media event, putting up the stand, speaking, you know, coding the website, whatever it is, I've done it. And I can always have a sense that I'm never asking or, or, or sitting next to someone to ask them to do something if I haven't done it myself. I think that, again, is that creates a connection, doesn't it? Because if people know that you're equally willing to do those jobs, then they don't feel that dynamic of the boss and the worker that tends to happen in the more traditional workspace. So you don't feel like – so it's, it, it's, it's a more egalitarian. Um, so tell us about – you alluded to, to, to this leading purposeful gaps. What did you mean by that? Leaving purposeful gaps. So sometimes um, when you're running volunteers or running a community movement or doing anything with people who then get paid, if you are a kind of strategic mind, you know what you need. You've got clarity about your way forward. You know that you need you know, people to fill these roles. You need this type of role to happen. But if you're running, if you're running you know, a movement with, with people who, who turn up when they choose to turn up, <clears throat> you can't guarantee that you can fill, fill that role. So take my, my last community movement, for example. We desperately needed to write a marketing strategy. Now, I can do that. I can do lots of things. <laughs> but, but what I really wanted to do was to find someone who could write it for us. And we couldn't afford to pay for it. I, I wasn't going to spend any more of my own money going to try and get that done. And um, we didn't have enough money in the bank of our, you know, in our coffers to go and find someone. So... We purposely, I purposely left the gap. And I left the gap for a long time. And everyone was like, we need a marketing strategy. We need a marketing strategy. We do need a marketing strategy. We need to find someone who's going to do that marketing strategy. And so ultimately what happened is that that gets everyone thinking about how they're going to go and try and find someone to fill the gap. And then six months later, we found someone to fill the gap. And they're going, we haven't got a marketing strategy. We need to write a marketing strategy. How right you are. Do you feel like doing that? Yes, I'll do that. <laughs> and... There's lots of things in that. But one that's really important is that people get ownership by allowing that gap to be, to be open. People get ownership by noticing there's a gap and people get ownership by filling that gap. Now, as a, as a, as a volunteer leader or community volunteer leader, it's very easy to fill all the gaps. And in my first movement, I did that and I wore myself out for years because I wanted it to be professional. I wanted it to look incredible and, and be all the things and I didn't want to allow myself to be vulnerable to leave gaps for it not to be good enough. Um, this time around, I've been smarter and I've left the gaps on purpose, waiting for people to solve. I was going to say, you, that's a great example of having to keep your ego at bay, isn't it? Because you, you know that you're probably being judged for not having a marketing plan. And uh, you've, so I'm sure the, the ego wants to rear up and solve that problem. But it's a great example of keeping that at bay, I think. It's especially when that person comes in who sees the gap and owns it, goes, I can't believe you haven't got a marketing plan. Why haven't you got a marketing plan, Jim? Oh, we just haven't had time, yeah. John or, or Mary. It's taken so long. <laughs> it's interesting you mentioned the um, I wouldn't ask someone to do something I wouldn't do myself. I get completely. You, you went a step further and said, 
I wouldn't ask someone to do something I haven't done myself. How important is that to you? Because I can definitely see, you know, if I'm going to clean the toilet, I'm going to show you that I'm going to go and I'm, I'm happy to clean toilets. But if I've got a, a Python coder, do I have to say, ah, oh, well, I've, I've coded in Python, so I can tell you. And over here, I've got a marketing person. I've done social media campaigns. Is, it, can I just drill down on that? Is that really what you're saying? Or you, are you just, is it a more subtle thing that people know you are prepared to, to put the effort in that they're putting in? Yeah, th- thanks for picking up on that. I think it's probably the more subtle thing, but it is an active, it, it is something that you need to be intentional about, about actively demonstrating. Very much. It's similar to the ego check with leaving the gaps, which is almost you want to look bad at something so someone will take it over from you. <laughs> I, thank you so much for doing that, but truly that's not your gift, Jim. I do this a lot. <laughs> You've just un- unearthed my parenting strategy, which is <laughs> I realised this one, that you know, if you fill the gap too much as a parent, then they think, well, why, why do I need to do it? But actually if you purposefully leave things, then in the end they do step up and do it. The only thing, the only exception I would call is, is 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 an untidy room. You might be waiting a couple of decades for that to be tidied, but but yeah, generally, yeah. So it's very smart, very smart little tip. So looking back, you're only in the half halfway stage. What would you do differently from the lessons learnt, particularly around leadership, for the second half? I think to be honest, I just focus more on uh, having less ego, more on less, <laughs> and uh, try and strip myself clearer and bearer faster because that's where you're more authentic and that's where people will really get the most out of following you and i haven't really had a i haven't had a period in the last 20 years where i've regretted that i've spent too long doing something so when i left world vision i left it on my own intention because i had this deep sense that my time was done and that i'd done 10 years as a senior leader in one particular area and that i needed that needed refreshment and needed a new person and I knew that was going to be challenging to leave. And it's a little bit like Jacinda Ardern, you know, you know when your time is right to leave and you just leave because that's what good leaders should do. And, and you know, you, you're just top of the S-curve, right? And someone needs to come in and take that and, and go forward. And so I haven't yet made that mistake where I felt like I'd hang on too long. But it is challenging because it means that sometimes if you're living passionately and purposely, you haven't necessarily prepared the next step. And society tells you and the world tells you, LinkedIn tells you to prepare for the next step. Yeah. That's, that's hard to do at the same time as head down, changing, you know, trying to change the world or have a, make an impact or, or do whatever you're trying to do. And so, you know, leaving, leaving space, as we mentioned at the start, leaving those gaps so that financially you can not be stressed for, for a year is, is critical. So, and I've, I've managed to do that. So I don't, I don't really have any regrets and um, I would just, Probably if I look back, I'd probably say focus more on vision, more on vision, more on vision, because that's what pulls you through. Yeah, this that resonates so much. I'm sure it will with Peer as well. So many of the teams we're working with just assume everyone's clear about the what, why, how and who, and they just move on and, and just get, get going on it. So it's really heartening to hear in your, as you described at the front end, this pure version of leadership you really double down on, on, on clarity. You spend a lot of time on that and connecting it to other people's um, perceptions and views and identity. So that, that, was, that was really heartening. And all, yeah, all teams could do with a little bit of that. 
It's the constant maintenance. So back to your intrinsic motivation mentioned at the start. That's what you're appealing to when you're appealing to change makers, volunteers, people doing things for nothing. And it's a constant maintenance that it's very easy to get into a to-do mindset. Oh, yeah, we need all these things to do and here's our action list. And then, but every time you meet, it's getting back to why we're here, you know, why are you here? And having that personal relational conversation to get and intentionally channeling and getting into that intrinsic motivation again because that's going to remind them that what they're about to undertake is is towards that end towards that vision that we jointly have i think in the in a, in a corporate job or in a four-paid job you can quite easily forget that yes and where where you've where you're trying to make poverty history or we're trying to get water to villages or whatever it, it probably seems really obvious and and the temptation is actually to move on really fast um but it sounds like it's the opposite i think so just a, a great great takeaway from from your learnings jim thank you so jim you've told us that um the the it's the important this the it's you've got to know when to hold them know when to fold them so it's it's time for us to bid you farewell but just wanted to before we do that just thank just wish you very well for all your future endeavors you've really inspired us i think with your um yeah with the way that you've sort of seen your career and you've made choices along the way so and you've made had a huge impact so thank you very much for taking time out today to join us on we not me Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Beers. I've known Jim. Well, I actually knew Jim 20 years ago. He wasn't a 20-something-year-old, but shortly afterwards, I think, having some of those realisations. And, you know, really, really interesting man with a deep sense of purpose and a, just such courage to challenge the norm, to, to live a life that, for him, is aligned to purpose. The way he talks about stripping back, we all do it. You get to positions inside organize. You're being fed this information that makes you feel safe and makes you feel more powerful or makes you feel something. And then stripping back that ego to get back in touch with purpose in order to do greater good. Oh, that's there's not many souls like that, but you can learn a lot. It doesn't doesn't mean we all have to do that. We can all learn something from that. I think there's something in that for everyone. I think I I, I loved your line of questioning there because that's that. What is the the that moment of change for people? Where, for a start, how do you make sure that you observe yourself? You're actually tuned into the fact you're unhappy. A lot of people just miss that. You know, living lives of desperation and just sometimes miss it. But then to do something about it. Very interesting. It took him a long time, but he really did do something. So it's, I think there was really something in that for, for everyone to think about. I was also fascinated by his, his conversation starter card, his persistent self-doubt connected with that, you know, trying to keep his ego at bay. You know, those two sort of, you could see those two playing, playing off each other. And I think, um, that temp, you know, when that self doubt comes in, you sometimes your your ego can flare up, and you you sort of fake it till you make it, and it doesn't look good. So, I was really interested in how those two cohabit for him as well. So f- fascinating and and an incredibly self aware person and uh, honest enough to share it with us. And I agree. And I think you know we sort of as we start to understand more about ourselves, we realise we've got these different parts, and then how they sort of have this dance. And that sort of self-doubt and ego, you know, you're trying to protect part of yourself and you're trying 
to actually lay yourself bare at the same time. <laughs> yeah, what joy, what joy. Um, and I, I, the other thing that leapt out for me was um, was this piece about clarity, as we would call it, the what, why, how, and who. And how much time Jim spent on that was one thing, but the the real, which I think we, you know, as we as I mentioned in the conversation, we see teams with poor clarity all the time, and spending time as he did is really vital. But the thing he did that was different from what most people do, even when they spend time on it, is that he then, having talked about that for the organization, he spent the spent effort helping people to connect to it individually. You know, what are individual motivations, their perceptions? So I think that is, um, now obviously he was sort of very purposeful working with volunteers, but this is something that any team leader could take away, I think, that that that, that vision, that purpose, et cetera, has to be made personal. Absolutely. And that, and that you've got to really invest in the time to get that clarity because it, because it, it's, it's, it's not something you just pick up in the, in one conversation because it's what does it, in that, what does it mean to me? You know, you're really is, is almost like an act of teaming. Am I in or am I out and how, and, but, but really getting to it on another level. Absolutely. And he didn't quite say this, but I think I got between the lines that that process can shake people out. He sort of that he's got a lot of volunteers in that conversation, those conversations, people think this is not for me. And and what you end up with is an enrolled group of people with intrinsic motivation that's really connected personally to what you're trying to achieve and why. So, yeah, it's. um, And I I wonder if almost, you know, quite a challenge of this is, is that some volunteers may have an ego about volunteering <laughs> and therefore that's something that you don't that may not be helpful in the dynamic so what's bringing you to volunteering what are you what's the payoff correct well you know my legendary volunteering to run the the band program at uh, at the primary school so i know uh, the therapy bill is is ramping up <laughs> let me tell you but it what well, it was fascinating because i saw a group of volunteers there and did not think about that what is their motivation for being there and of course i just went straight in made assumptions about those motivations which to be honest was for a lot of those people, was just social. It was actually hanging out with other people. It wasn't really necessarily to do something. But other people, the very, they were very huge variety of motivations, and uh, it's not all the same. It's not all the same. So anyway, I've learned. I was young. I was young. What can I say? You was young, um, I've, I've, and they gave <laughs> you feedback. I think, didn't they? <laughs> The two most powerful words in the English language, but I- <laughs> and one ended with off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The second one's off. Yeah, so that went very well. Anyway, I think that <laughs> is a perfect time to call a close to this episode. You can find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please do share the love and recommend it to your friends. If you'd like to contribute to the show, just email us at wenotmepod at gmail.com. We Not Me is produced by Mark Steadman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye.